Thanks so much, Ashley. It's uh, great to hear that timeless story about rock and sand, a story that's applicable to our text this evening or this afternoon or this morning, whenever you have me watching. In Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 8, uh, we're glad that you're worshiping with us wherever you are around the Puget Sound region, the greater Seattle area, around the world. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a privilege to share this moment of worship together. Please join me as we pray, and then we will begin together. Father, we want to thank you that we're privileged to gather wherever we are today to listen for your voice. And our desire, Father, is that you would shape us to be people who are able to display the hope of Christ in the midst of all that is unfolding around us. We acknowledge that we are in the midst of uncertainty, We're in the midst of crisis. We're in the midst of fear, many of us. Uh, We acknowledge financial crises, physical crises, health crises, social crises, divisions. More than ever, we pray, Jesus, that you would so fill us and so shape us that we can be people of hope right in the midst of the situation which we find ourselves. And we'll thank you for that. As we pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, As some of you know, I travel and I'm privileged to teach over in Europe uh, once or twice a year at different schools, Bible schools. And when I go to Austria, if you don't know this, Austria is one of my favorite places to ever travel. I think I tell people it's my favorite country when I travel. And when I travel to Austria, I try to behave like an Austrian. I eat German food. I know enough German to order food in uh, in Austria, in the in the German language, uh, Austrians love hiking every day. So I try and hike every day when I'm there. When Austrians have celebrations, they wear lederhosen. When I'm there and I'm involved in a celebration, I wear lederhosen. I even learned an Austrian folk dance that I can do while I'm wearing lederhosen. I try very hard to behave like an Austrian, and uh, what I'm trying to do in a way is show Austrians that I belong in Austria. But here's the deal. Nobody in Austria believes that I belong in Austria. They all know that I'm an American. And there are several reasons for that. First of all, I'm incredibly optimistic about everything as most Americans are. And they tell me that. And then they say, and Richard, when you're at a party and we're all drinking beer and you drink milk, that's a dead giveaway that you're not an Austrian. No Austrians drink milk. Also, when I get up at four in the morning to watch a Seattle Seahawks game, I'm alone. There are no Austrians who get up to watch American football. They don't even care about American football. My language, my food, my habits, my sport, all witness, and this is a key word today, everything witnesses that I belong to a different kingdom. Everything witnesses that I belong to a different kingdom. Now, the reason that that's important in our text today, Acts 1 Uh, verses 6 to 8, is that's exactly your calling and mine. We're called to show the world that we actually belong to a different kingdom than the kingdom in which we're living. We're living, many of us, in an American kingdom, and because we're watching from many parts of the world, we're living in many nations, many different nations. But if we are Christ followers, our primary kingdom is not the nation in which we find ourselves. We're not first Americans. We're not first capitalists. We're not first socialists. We're not first uh, communists. We're not first into upward mobility. We're not first environmentalists. We're first citizens of this new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about today. And our calling, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, is to witness 
to the reality that though we live in this kingdom over here, in my case, America, though I live in the kingdom of America, I am actually belonging to a different kingdom. I'm a foreigner. That's my calling. That's your calling if you're a Christ follower. So this is pretty simple in our time together in Bible study today. What I want to talk about is two words, kingdom and witness. Because the disciples ask a question in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's back now talking to the disciples. The disciples have come to believe that this is indeed Jesus. And now he's about to ascend up into heaven. And they ask him a question. And his answer reveals some very important things. Listen again to what Ashley read. When they'd come together, they were asking him this question. Lord, is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Kingdom question, right? And then Jesus says, not for you to know, and a few other things. And then he says, but you can know this. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witness. And so you'll be a witness. Those are the two words. Uh, kingdom, witness. So just before Jesus leaves the earth, he offers clarifications of these two words. Because the disciples understood kingdom to, be one, to mean one thing. Jesus explains it to be something else. The disciples understood witness to be one thing. Jesus shows that it's something else. We need the same reframing that was offered to the disciples by Jesus. We need that same reframing today. So two words we're looking at. And the first word that needs clarification over here, kingdom, right? Here's the question on the table. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom? Now, here's the thing. The people asking the question had, had uh, been in a human kingdom. It was called the nation of Israel, right? And that nation had taxes, had an army, had borders, just like any nation has all those things. But it was also the people of God. And then around 600 B.C., through a, a number of circumstances beyond the scope of this talk, that nation imploded. Like they were taken over by the Babylonian Empire and then the Medes and the Persians, Greeks. At this time now, the Romans occupied the land that was once Israel. And so in their minds, in the disciples' minds, like when they think of a kingdom, that's what they're thinking of. So that, that's exactly what they ask. Lord... Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And that question implies that they're still stuck on the wrong foundation of nationalism. In their mind, the kingdom of Israel equals the kingdom of God, right? That's kind of how they're thinking. Uh, because they equated the kingdom with a nation, then they hoped for a Messiah that would bring restoration to the nation of Israel and so you can imagine as you're listening to Jesus, you live in what was once a land belonging to Israel, but, but then uh, that's been destroyed. The land's been occupied by Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans. There's been war and famine and plague and taxation and oppression. And now along comes Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, three years prior to this text. And in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 23, this is what you read. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now, if you're listening to that and you understand the kingdom to be Israel and Jesus says the kingdom is close at hand, you're excited because this means the restoration of Israel. This is very good news. And that's why 
on Palm Sunday, all the Jews were like this, Hosanna, save us now. Man, we want this Messiah to restore Israel. Wow. And then hence, of course, the profound discouragement of the disciples at the crucifixion. And later they would say this, we thought it was he, Jesus, who was going to redeem Israel, and he didn't. (laughs) So when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, they were thrilled. But what Jesus meant by the kingdom and what they meant by the kingdom were two entirely different things. So, So we saw last week, Jesus rise from the dead. He spends 40 days talking about the kingdom, right? He's teaching them about the kingdom. They thought, though, that Jesus had come to restore their national kingdom. And if that thinking was accurate, then they'd see themselves as uh, these uh, Jewish people as kind of moving up and the Romans would move down. They would win and, and, and the Romans would lose. They would become prosperous. The others would be left out. They would be the haves. The others would be the have-nots. They would become the rich. Others would become the poor. They would be the right. Others would be the wrong. Uh, this, is, this kind of division is not the kingdom of God. It's human kingdom thinking. And in every human kingdom, there's up and down, rich and poor, winner, loser, male, female, black, white, in, out. But here's the problem. The kingdom, as articulated even in the Old Testament of the prophets, was a kingdom that was beyond nations. When Isaiah talked of a coming kingdom, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he says, listen, when God reigns on this earth, every nation will take their weapons and melt them down into tools of agriculture. They'll all join hands. They'll ascend the mountain of God and they'll say, let's go worship. We have met the one living and true God. We are now bound together beyond race, beyond nationalism, beyond classism, beyond sexism, beyond all of that. The one thing that binds us together, boom, Christ. That's amazing. Every wall uh, broken down. And then Jesus, of course, taught that the kingdom would be made of all nations as well. He taught it in the parable of the banquet, if you remember that parable, where this guy goes out and there's a banquet and, and the servant is sent out to ask the people who'd receive invitations to come to the banquet. He says, hey, are you ready to come? And they all make excuses why they can't come. And then uh, Jesus says, look, do you know who's going to come in then to the banquet? People from the east and the west and the north and south, they'll all come running in and those who were invited won't come. Wow. We thought we were going to be more in and everybody else out and Jesus completely turns the tables. So, so here's Jesus. He's teaching this kingdom teaching when he was alive. He went to the cross and died and in so doing proved that the kingdom of God would not be taken by force. And then he has spent the last 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And they still ask at the last minute, oh, hey, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to us, to Israel? Here's the thing. They're looking back and they're asking about restoration. Can I just say something right now? We're asking restoration questions in this exact moment, aren't we? This is what I hear every night on the news. When are we going to get back to normal? When will we return to February 2020, because God knows April 2020 is not very fun. So can we just wave a magic wand and open everything and get back? But listen, I I want you to understand, one look at history tells us this. 
God's kingdom is not contingent on us getting back to February 2020. Not at all. God's kingdom is not dependent on the economy. It's, it's not dependent on nation status. It's not dependent on upward mobility. It's not dependent on any of the things that we cling to. Um, God's kingdom is built, as we saw in the illustration, on a rock. And no economic storm, no plague storm, no famine storm, no political upheaval storm, no election storm in November will ever be able to shake the kingdom of God. That's why that's where you want to invest your life. It will never be shaken. Kingdom of God made it through the 30s in Germany during the insanity that was the Reich. Kingdom of God thriving in China in the 50s in a house church movement during the totalitarian regime of Chairman Mao. Kingdom of God in Russia under, under Stalin. The kingdom of God has no contingencies. Doesn't need democracy. Doesn't need capitalism. Doesn't, doesn't need absence of a plague. The kingdom of God is here now. That's really good news. So what does Jesus mean by the kingdom? A couple of things that I'll just address very quickly. The kingdom, first of all, it's clear, the kingdom is global. We've already talked about this. But remember the shepherds when Jesus arrived and those angels brought a message? Shepherds were afraid because they hadn't seen angels in the sky before. It's understandable. But then remember, here's the message. Behold, I bring you good tidings, great joy, which shall be for what? All people. And then, you know, Jesus in his ministry, at the very beginning, goes out of his way to bless a Samaritan woman. And by, the, by, by virtue of the fact that she's a Samaritan, she's supposed to be excluded. A woman, supposed to be excluded. Living with a man, not her husband, supposed to be excluded. So in this world, essentially dominated by uh, Jewish people and males and the quote-unquote, you know, sexually together, she becomes the first evangelist. God is trying to shout to us, can you see that I'm inclusive? It's a very important message. And then Jesus praises the faith of a Roman soldier at one point and says, I haven't seen in all of Israel the faith of this guy. How shocking would that be to Israel? And then he goes on in that very text and says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So the kingdom of God, international, global, so should you be. That means the end of racism and nationalism and xenophobia. That's what it means. It means that we're the first to cross social divides and break down walls. The kingdom upside down as well. Jesus is teaching us that. And by upside down, I simply mean this. In the kingdom of God, the last become first, the weak become strong, the mourners become those who laugh and sing. In a world of individualism, the kingdom of God is a call to community. In a world where leaders use their power to their own advantage, Jesus says that true leadership is about serving and empowering others. In a world where the global economy is built on fostering anxiety and a sense of inadequacy, so that you buy more stuff, Jesus' kingdom tells us not to worry about possessions. <clears throat> in a world of hoarding because of fear of the future, Jesus tells us to live generously and lavishly and care for one another. Everything is turned on its head in the kingdom of God. So the end of greed, the end of classism, the end of eugenics, the end of kind of this Darwinian survival of the fittest struggle for upward mobility, it's over in God's kingdom. And then Jesus also taught us mysteriously the kingdom is both here and coming, both. Jesus says that the kingdom is already here. 
But it's here like, like yeast in bread. Yeast is insignificant compared to flour. And I know many of you are making bread right now. Send me some. It's fine. Little bit of yeast. Lot of flour. But the yeast permeates the entire loaf. Little insignificant kingdom. People of God. And yet, the people of God, particularly in a crisis, rising to shine. This is why, as I've shared before, uh, in the first uh, three centuries of the church, there were two massive plagues, both of which wiped out about a quarter of humanity. And during both of those times of the plague, the church actually grew dramatically. Why? Because it's in exactly times like this when generosity and service and courage and hope shine. Kingdom of God is here. It's not big. It's not politically powerful or shouldn't be. But it's built on a rock. And so it's impervious to the storms of health systems and economic systems and dictatorships and ideologies. The kingdom of God is among us when hungry people are fed and loved, when racial divides are crossed, when uh, walls are broken down, when materialism gives way to contentment and simplicity and generosity, when individualism gives way to community and hospitality, when the weak receive dignity, when a nurse brings a phone to a dying patient so she can say goodbye to her husband, when when, when a woman in the army... Uh, encounters a soldier in the Iraqi army who is also a Christian and they join hands and they pray. It's the kingdom of God, kind of breaking in, right? It's beautiful. It's compelling. It's inviting. That's your kingdom and mine. Not America. We live here. We vote here. We, We sing the national anthem. We enjoy baseball. It's not our kingdom. Not fundamentally, not primarily. That's not our main kingdom. Can't be. Not if we're disciples. If you remember last week, there was a table right here, and I shook the table as I read Hebrews 12, 28, which says, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And there was kind of money on the table representing different kingdoms, and all the money slid off the table. The cross remained. Same story tonight. House built on a rock. House built on sand. There's just this huge question. What are you building your life on? What kingdom is your kingdom? Or if I could use kind of more familiar language, what's your primary family? It's not, it's not your nuclear family. Listen, your kids will grow up and leave the home. It's not your nation. Nations rise and fall. What's your primary family? It's the question. And Hebrews 12, 28, <clears throat> since we belong to a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us, let us what? Be afraid? (laughs) Be ashamed that we haven't written a novel while we're in social isolation? Be hoarding? Be marching to open up with signs saying, sacrifice the weak? Is that God's kingdom? No. Since Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, watch this, let us be thankful. Wow, that's Hebrews 12. True kingdom citizens will continue to serve this broken world, continue to share resources, seek simplicity, and or they might share freely, love their neighbors regardless of their faith, regardless of their sexual identity, cross social divides, continue to love and care for creation. Why? These things last forever. They don't change in November 
or when, when we reopen or don't. That's your kingdom. So Jesus, you know, he had to reframe kingdom. It's not about restoration. It's about infiltration. Here we are, yeast in the, in the world that is a loaf of bread, bringing hope and letting that hope permeate everything. Second word, witness. Hey, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? His answer, uh, wrong question, basically. Instead of answering that question, he redirects the conversation. And the redirect isn't the main point here, but it's kind of important, so let's look at it for a second. Again, Acts 1, uh, 6 through 8. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, not for you to know. But here's what you can know. And then he goes on and gives an answer. This is why that little bit right there is important to me. Jesus redirects them away from what they can't know to what they can know. And I'm going to suggest that we could all use a little bit of redirecting right now so that we're not wasting energy on what we can't control. We can't control when things open up. We can't control how things will be when they do open up. We can't control uh, the job and salary implications of the current crisis. So don't spend too much time there. When the disciples asked Jesus about things that they shouldn't know and couldn't control, he directed their attention to what they could know. So this is what they can know. In verse 8, he says, know this. Know this, you will be a witness. Now, this is really interesting. It's not an exhortation. Hey, go be a witness. It's a prophecy. It's reality. It's the way it's going to be. Know this. You're a witness. Uh, and, And this is important because our calling is to see ourselves as literally representing Christ on a day to day basis. Christ was here in body, now he's ascended. But Christ's life remains in us, in you, in me. And because of that, God's intention is that you be a witness, a testimony to the reality that Jesus is still alive. This is amazing. Because it appeared kind of on Good Friday that death had won and hate had won and fear and pride and violence and division. No. Jesus' resurrection created a kingdom in which life triumphs over death, love over hate. Courage over fear, service over power, peace over violence, unity over division, hope over despair, community over individual, together over tribal. Wow. That's the kingdom. Now, the battle is still raging between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God, but we already know the kingdom of God is built on a rock. It can never be shaken. Nations will come and go. Economic systems will come and go. Uh, Philosophies will come and go. But God's kingdom is here and your calling and mine is to testify that we live by an entirely different set of values than the values of the world. This is Elizabeth Elliot going back to serve and love the tribal people who killed her husband back in 1958. This is Christians offering hospice in the midst of the second century plague. This is Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad offering hope and freedom in Jesus' name. This is people uh, serving hot takeaway meals in our community meal. This is church empowerment zones in Rwanda where pastors band together 
to address financial and moral and physical and public health needs within their community. And this is us as a church learning about church empowerment from Rwanda so that we can create a church empowerment zone right here in Seattle on this Aurora Quarter where we live. This is you and I being the friends of Christ in our neighborhood, in our book club, with our neighbors, in hospitality. This is parents with children 24-7. This is put simply the realization Jesus is still alive today in you and me, in us together. And when we live out from the power and values of Jesus, we look like Jesus. And then people say, just like they do to me in Austria, oh, you actually don't belong here. You belong to a different kingdom. That's your calling, my calling, our calling. Wow, that's witness. We thought witnessing meant handing out tracts or arguing about the age of the earth. We thought it was four simple steps to convince somebody they're a sinner and that Christ died for them. No. Listen, words matter, but here's the thing. Your life matters more than your words. Because people, when people see your values and how you use your time and your money and how you hold your sexuality and whether you make eye contact or not, or whether you smile or not, this testifies that your values do not come from this world. How you treat your enemies, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your friends, that's your witness. And I'll tell you why this matters. People are deciding who Jesus is based on your life. My wife and I, uh, about seven years ago or so, I was involved in a conference over in Europe, and so I was speaking in England, and we went up to Edinburgh. We stayed in a bed and breakfast in Edinburgh. It was an Airbnb, so we stayed with this couple. Absolutely delightful couple. They were so sweet, so good to us, and she was pregnant. It was her first child, my wife went out, bought them a present. They asked what we were doing in England. It was a chance for me to tell them about the teaching ministry I have. I was with torchbearers. We were, there were people gathering from all over the world to study the Bible. Uh, we became Facebook friends. And then we were just amazed later on to see like a, a, a Facebook post about us after we'd left. And this woman, we, Donna had bought her a present for the baby. And she said, um, uh, she said, we hosted in our home the most inspiring people we've ever met. Now, maybe they don't know many people. That could be the point. But what struck me was there wasn't a single argument about the age of the earth or uh, no kind of, you're a sinner. And yet they knew that we were Christ followers. And there was something that drew them, something. Listen, you're always on. And I don't say that to make you nervous. I hope that you develop kind of this healthy self-confidence. Wow, Christ is in me. And if I'm really in this family and I really have the, idea, the imprint of God on my life because the resurrected Jesus lives in me and the, the power of the Holy Spirit resides in me, if all that's true, wow. I have a chance to be the presence of Christ for others. That's witness. It's a noun. And then, you know, we see in this text that their confidence, their capacity to be a witness will come because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, you'll receive this power enabling you to be an entirely different person. So, says Jesus, I love this, don't do anything until you get the Holy Spirit. Because until you have this imprint of kind of divine DNA, until you have that, you got nothing. 
So don't do anything until you get the Holy Spirit. When you have the Holy Spirit, you will be changed. And they were. The divine, like Christ would so use them that soon they'd be speaking amazingly powerful words. They'd be healing bodies. They'd be living boldly where once there'd been fear. Ultimately, they'd be crossing major social divides and philosophical divides and economic divides and religious divides to create uh, this new kind of global international community. And in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, they crossed both racial and sexual divides with one guy and they began practicing radical generosity, living in community. Who does this stuff? I'll tell you who. People who are a new creation. People who have God's DNA imprinted on them to the Holy Spirit. So they have new values that are learned now because they now live in a new family, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. For you to live the life you're created to live, you need a source of power you don't have. And that new source will call you to move more and more and more of your life off of the foundation of sand and onto the rock that is God's eternal kingdom. Cannot be shaken. I want to show you a couple of pictures here as we close. The first picture, if you can see it, is of me. You can tell from that picture that I like mountains and I like skiing. The second picture here is of my son. You can tell from that picture that my son likes mountains and skiing. Now let me just ask you why. I, I, I didn't make him like mountains and skiing. Here's the thing. My son has two things that make him like me. DNA and family values. That's it. He's got my DNA. And I don't know how much of loving mountains is DNA, but he has my DNA and I go up and I like going up and he loves going up. And, 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 and both of us would say, God has spoken to us more profoundly in the theater of creation ever than in a church building. And then, you know, he grew up in a family where we didn't uh, spend a lot of time in fancy hotels or motels. Uh, we were always camping and hiking. Let me just say, here's why I tell you a story. Remember, someone who, would, who sees my son would know Oh, you belong to that family. They would know. If they see me and they see him. Oh, you belong to that family. That's all witnesses. God's desire is that people would look at you and say, you know what? You don't belong to the kingdoms of capitalism and upward mobility and greed and fear and body shaming and all, all the shallow, trivial entertainment that consumes people. You don't belong to the kingdom that gives birth to anxiety and xenophobia and anger and cynicism. That's not your home. People look at you and they know you belong to a different kingdom. Now, why would they know that? Two reasons. First of all, you have the divine DNA of Christ living in you. You do. And by the way, if you don't, you can text us right now, 64600, write prayer. We want to help you know that Christ lives in you. This is the life you're created for. And then, but here's the thing. You can still have that divine DNA and misrepresent Christ. If you don't, 
if you don't allow the values of the family to shape you. I watched a couple of YouTube videos this week. One was of a Swedish family in northern Sweden cutting a hole in the ice to take an ice bath. And the other was uh, from a conference of theologians about a certain theological topic. And at the end of the ice bath video, I was like this, man, I want to move to Sweden and cut a hole in the ice and take an ice bath because these people are, there is joy in their countenance. There's simplicity in their life. There's charity with their neighbors. They baked a birthday cake for their dad and took it to him who was in isolation with the COVID virus. It was pure beauty, man. And then I go to this conference of theologians and they're arguing and, and I, I won't tell you who or what, but a, a well-known guy was rude, just rude. And I was like this, I'd rather go dig a hole in the ice. Why? Because my heart hungers for joy and hope and beauty and simplicity and meaning. Not theological arguments. And can I just say to you, so does everyone's heart. And if you belong to the kingdom of Christ and you have that divine DNA and then you're in the family of God, we as the family of God want to help each other as we gather both virtually and eventually physically. We want to help each other become people who are moving out of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of God. Out of greed into generosity. Out of fear into courage. Out of cynicism into hope. Out of anger into patience. That's a calling. Look like Jesus. That's an adventure. And that's a kingdom that can never be shaken. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much uh, for the disciples' question and your brilliant answer. Thank you for redirects. We thought kingdoms were about nationalism. Or if not nationalism, a particular political party that's right and the other one's wrong. Or a particular economic system. You totally shook that up. Thank you. You have a kingdom not of this world, but we belong to it. And then thank you too, Jesus, for uh, the kind of the reality that you told us. Listen, you will be a witness. People will decide the validity of Jesus by your joy and peace and patience and kindness and long-suffering and gentleness. So embody hope as you're filled with the Spirit. Jesus, we have failed at this, but it's a new day. Your mercies are new. Shape us to be people of hope in your kingdom. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.